on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, Ashley kicks off a new segment about the stories behind the musical moments that punctuate sports history. Plus, two-minute drill, never before has a world premiere opera been so on brand for the OBS. Get this. Gods of the game, a football opera. EA Sports, it's in the game. So excited to get to that. Hey, if you're watching on TDO, Dallas Opera Network, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. You want to get the full show, Stitcher, Spotify, click follow, or if you're on Apple Podcasts, you just smash that plus sign. Tweet or email us your thoughts at OperaBoxScore, OperaBoxScore, gmail.com. You, you want that OBS beer coaster. I know it. You want that OBS lapel pin, and you get it. You just share your hot take. It's that simple. Amazing. Oliver Camacho, there he is, wearing the red and white of Canada. You know, um, <laughs> it is Canada at the Australian Open. Now, the women's game is a disaster right now, so I won't talk about that. But two of my boys, Denis Shapovalov and Felix Oje Aliasim, have made it into the quarters. And maybe by the time you're listening to this, they've been eliminated. But I'm so proud of these boys. Oje Aliasim is playing like a beautiful Greek god. And uh, he took out former U.S. Open champion Mar- Marin Cilic. And the biggest surprise so far is Denis Shapovalov, who's like this little Eminem. He's like a rapper and like he's like too cool, you know. Uh, he beat the Olympic gold medalist uh, Sasha Zverev, which was a huge, huge upset. Zverev was expected to be in the finals. So uh, I'm all for Team Canada. I'm wearing my Canadian colors. I've got this beautiful flag flying in my apartment right now. So. Man, you are really feeling it. That's awesome. <laughs> Matt Cummings on the show this week. Celebrating my first weekend of having to dig out my car. Happy winter, Chicago. Uh, <laughs> tis the season. Weston Williams, do you have a car to dig out? I do. It is square and looks like a toaster. Excellent. Ashley, you made it. Das Vidanya, everybody. The Russians didn't get me. <laughs> well, they did, but you had, you had a daring escape. There were lasers. Uh, you had a, coming... <laughs> all sorts of James Bond gadgets. Yes. Uh, if you're watching us on video, I'm coming to you live from my dark bunker where I'm hiding from the Russian opera mafia. Uh, just kidding. In this Arkansas. is the best life I can <laughs> Yes, in the state of Pope County in Arkansas. Yeah, I don't know. It's I, The joke is over. I you get just Natashley. Um, I do. Well, here's the thing. I thought I was going to live a long, happy life. Uh, that was taken down by at least five to seven years after the football playoffs this weekend. Uh, <laughs> the Bills Chiefs game. If you haven't heard about it, you will. My goodness, a lifetime can happen in 13 seconds. Also, the NFL overtime rules are a little bit bogus, but none of this matters because both Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers are out of the playoffs, so it is a beautiful Yay! time to be alive. And they're replaced by <laughs> Denis Shapovalov and Felix Aljozovsim. If they can play running back, I'm down for it. Here's the thing, right? So I am a Lions fan first. I'm a Bears fan second. 
I'm not a Packers fan. I, I clearly don't like the Packers. I clearly don't like Aaron Rodgers. What I do like is the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field. And while I'm happy that the Packers are not in the next round, there is something so picturesque about playing NFL playoff football at Lambeau. The snow was coming down. Sub-zero uh, temperatures were had by just, all. <laughs> just so gorgeous. And then poor, poor little uh, Karen Rogers' tears were freezing on his face. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Okay, so ignore that little intro bit about Chalk Talk. It's a brand new segment. <laughs> we don't have a name. We don't have a handle. Yeah, on vacation. Hey, Norm's on, first of all, Norm's on vacation. Second of all, I blame you, the listeners and the viewers, for not tweeting and emailing us enough. So if you have an idea after you've listened to this segment, let us know. A new tool in our arsenal, guilt. (laughs) (laughs) What I do know is that it's about the intersection of sports and music. Ashley, what do we got? That is correct. And, you know, the notion of guilt, we will get into some emotional manipulation later in this segment. So you guys are bringing in all the right things. So... (laughs) All of this, I actually started badgering the team about this a while ago. Uh, I was watching the Summer Olympics last summer, and the basketball preliminaries were happening, and I heard this familiar tune, which I'm going to sing for you so that we don't get copyrighted. Take that, bots! Uh, and the tune was... Okay, so if very syncopated, yes, very syncopated. If you're of a certain age, that it stays with you, and even if you don't know it, you know it. I was like, I know this. Uh, I know what this is. It doesn't feel like it's supposed to be in the Olympics, uh, but it goes with something. And so I went on what I call an internet spelunk. I dove down. I lowered (laughs) myself into all of the buckets I could find. And I found out that that song was called Round Ball Rock, which is also known as the NBA on NBC theme. And that ran on television from 1990 to 2002 when it played 12,000 times in its original run. It bookended the Bulls. Uh, three peats, both of them. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so NBC revived it when they covered the Olympics basketball team. So that's when we heard it in 2008, 2016, and the 2020 Olympics, which were actually the ones where I heard it last summer in 2021. Fox got the rights to this four years ago for college hoops, but I haven't heard it there yet. But I, to be fair, I'm not watching a lot of college hoops on Fox. Okay, when I poorly sang that theme, how many of you actually like remembered something in the back of your brain? Yeah, definitely. The fact that I don't really has has no bearing on on whether or not this is relevant to pop culture. Take it to Grandpa Oliver. You're my only hope. Did you recognize the theme? Um, I'm not sure if it was in the right octave for me, and I have a very small brain. So I don't hear the exact accurate historical he pitch. He has perfect you know? pitch. He can hear <laughs> every single five. note. You know what? Fine. I will sing you a caller. But also, I don't watch. Later. I don't watch NBA. That's the thing. Yeah, but to be fair, this is the NBA of 1990 to 2002, so this was a while back. (laughs) All right, so at any rate, there is this insanely recognizable piece of music. It's tied to sports history, and then I spelunked a little bit further into finding out the history and the backstory of this song, and guys, it's a doozy. So, okay, so that was written by John Tesh, Round Ball Rock was, (laughs) which, yes, pause for laughter, pause for giggles, pause for whatever your memories are of John Tesh. Ladies and gents, if you don't know who John Tesh is, we're going to go on a wild ride and I'm going to leave you presents to see on our website after this show is up. So he was commissioned by the NBA to write this theme in the late 1980s. If you don't know about John Tesh in the late 80s, 
do yourself a favor. Google him. The visuals are majestic. So he's oh, wow. on tour. That is. Yes. Yeah. 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 Do it in real That's time, folks. You're all that. watching. <laughs> You're all listening on smartphones. Google John Tesh right now. T E S H. Uh, so he is on tour with his classical and rock fusion orchestra. Yes, that was a thing. Amazing. In Europe, and he gets this idea for this commission he needs to write for the NBA. And keep in mind, this is like late 80s, 1989. So he has no iPhone. There's no recorder. He doesn't have a piano in his hotel room. So what does he do? He calls his house in Los Angeles and he sings the message into his home answering machine so he doesn't forget it. Oh, right. I realize some of our listeners are Millennials young. So children... today have no idea what it, this it would be, story means. It would be similar to taking out your phone and taking a picture of something that you have to remember for later, which is my... Yes, yes. May, I, it makes me feel like an old man now that I say that out loud because the Gen Zs are coming for me. I can feel them uh, like breathing down the back of my neck, but I think it's the same sort of vibe. Aren't you That's a Gen correct. Z yourself? No, I'm a, I'm a baby millennial. I'm like I'm like one of the last oh. last few millennials, uh, okay. so that means I've got to worry about taxes, and I uh, I don't know um, what fleek is. <laughs> Topical <laughs> reference from Just ten stop. years ago. Please, That's, please stop. You're, you're nailing it. So uh, so for you baby birds out there who don't know what an answering machine is, when you would call and leave a voicemail, and it would record to a cassette tape in your home residence. <laughs> that is where he documented this so that he could remember the theme. So there is an incredible video of him actually telling this story in a concert live at Red Rocks. And then he pulls out the actual answering machine that he used to record Lord. it and then performs the entire theme with his classical rock orchestra. Oh, it amazing. is we're going to have the video on our website. We're going to have a series. I'm leaving you a whole bunch of gifts this week. And when I tell you the like BD energy, the like sexual Yanni Red Rocks rock and chemistry, it's bonkers. It's absolutely <laughs> between amazing. him and the answering machine. Are we talking like Tran- Trans-Siberian Orchestra feels? It's that vibe. It's that okay. vibe. Um, more Mandarin collars and shiny vests. But yes, yes, definitely <laughs> that vibe. I, that goes uh, without saying, I think. There is also this really incredible sketch from Saturday Night Live, maybe 10-ish years ago, uh, that actually goes into what the creation of this theme might have been. At any rate, there's amazing stories behind this. And what this did, it got me thinking. There are stories behind all of these different types of music. The stories behind the roles that music plays in these punctuated moments within sports history. And believe it or not, how the reverse happens. How sports punctuates the history of our genre. These super fun backstories that, like, you didn't know you needed. Uh, So today... I'm going to tell you how BBC made a Turandot aria the prevailing anthem for world soccer. <laughs> Please tell. Signore Ascolta? <laughs> uh, so, uh, <laughs> so very, so very, very close. So it's 1990. The World Cup is happening. The BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, is getting ready to cover the World Cup. Producers there choose a 1972 recording of Luciano Pavarotti singing Nessun Dorma with the London Phil and Zubin Mehta, and they use it as the soundtrack to their credits. Now, let's think, this is a big risk for the BBC to use this. Most sports coverage of this time, 1990, had like 80s rock and synthesizers, decidedly not a 1926 opera aria, but... A producer wanted to capture this emotive and dramatic nature of the World Cup and was fixated on like the swells and the sores of this aria. And most importantly, the word vincero, which is I will win. 
Got it. Cool. Mm-hmm. Also, the games that year were in Italy, so it seemed like a match. So initially, the producers matched this aria with a clip of Marco Tardell's ecstatic celebration after scoring in the 1982 World Cup. And this is a clip they put together for the World Cup draw, just the draw. It went over so well that they decided to go for total emotional manipulation and there they use this the aria as the and opening <laughs> and, and the end credits pretty much any place they could jam it in during bbc's world cup coverage they put it in there's an article that was uh on the website the 42 which talks about the creation of this and i quote producers used the image of tardelli as he ran away I said Tartle earlier, excuse me. Producers used the image of Tardelli as he ran away with his arms spread and mouth wide open in delirium as the climax came. It was a mix of current and past grace, which we graphically stylized to fit in with the overall feel of the titles and, of course, with the music. Tardelli's celebration was the crucial shot for the finale, mouth agape to the mirror of Pavarotti's (laughs) voice. The original lip sync for your life. None (laughs) shall sleep indeed. Not yes. I, maybe I'm the only person on the panel who remembers this happening in real time. So Italian ninety, that was my second World Cup uh, yeah. after Mexico City in '86, and I remember this voice. I, I did not, of course, know who Pavarotti was at the time, uh, or Tardelli for that matter. But I remember those images synchronized with that voice and being like, "This is absolutely incredible." I have to tell you, the editing on this, we have this clip also, so I can I can show it to you. But man, let me tell you, the editors deserve every Emmy imaginable. It really it it tugs at your heartstrings. If you can divorce yourself from like what's actually happening, because Kalaf kind of sucks, you know, but if you're thinking about just the words <laughs> I will win as you're watching these victorious, you know, football players running around and, you know, mouth agape and embracing, it's amazing. <laughs> it is absolutely epic. And I'm not the only one that thought so. Football fans went wild for this collaboration on the BBC. So by the time the tournament reached the semis, 26 million people were tuning into BBC's broadcasts every day. So people who never knew who (laughs) he was or what the opera was, Gesundheit Oliver, suddenly were half singing (laughs) Nessun Dorma all over the place. You could hear people just, you know, humming this along. They recognized this tune, not knowing anything about opera. So... It becomes a big deal. It becomes a big hit. And in turn, a lot of people who didn't know who Pavarotti was all of a sudden do. And he becomes this big stock within pop culture. Uh, The recording at the time was like 20 years old. It Mm -hmm. hit number two on the UK charts in 1990. And that's back when charts used to mean something. Yeah, that's true. still bought CDs. And listened to the the radio. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And the telly. Uh, The hype only heightens. So Pavarotti goes to perform the aria in concert at Rome on the eve of the 1990 Italia World Cup final. This concert was coincidentally also the first performance of the three tenors, who also performed Nessun Dorma together. So you get the birth of this pop culture sensation and then Mm. followed by a second pop culture sensation. All on the The original El Divo. The orig- that is correct. The original well, boy is- band. <laughs> this also feels like the origin story for how we got the Aretha Franklin Nessun Dorma from the Grammys. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we will get into that one in another segment. I have an entire analysis so excited. of thoughts and feelings. She's got her purse. She puts it on the piano. She goes. It's amazing. She splits the word Vincero into 18 syllables. It's incredible. Uh, so Pavarotti now has this huge thing in his pocket, and he really ends up becoming you know, sort of 
not the anthem singer, but the anthem singer for all of these different sports events, most specifically in Italy. It becomes what we would call his sports swan song. Uh, and it was actually his last public performance as well. Uh, 2006 Winter Olympics in Torino, year before his Probably death. Probably a this step down. Yes. Eggs, you know, that's how it is. But at any rate, uh, BBC turned Nessun Dorma into a prevailing anthem for world soccer, and it's been going for 30 years strong, even most recently as Euro 2020, when it was performed by Andrea Bocelli, where the scene of the crime, Roma, Italia. What I'm, Amazing. What I'm hearing you say is that this is the anthem, throw all your hands up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a delayed reaction to that good Charlotte reference. <laughs> Making it's, it's it 1997 like, again through there, fear there was, or there was air right. between the joke and the laugh. Like it was it was a pause. What's Italian for I'm coming out so you better get this party started? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We should uh we well, should any find out, Aria but... di Sortite would fit that, you know. But uh, what we should figure out what we should get ahead of this and we should figure out what is the unmined great aria that can be the next sports anthem Ooh, ooh, yeah i love that something for I, team canada oh it's i i can't think of any maple syrup based operas unfortunately <laughs> yeah would it be in french or in english depends on how far east or west okay, well, we could we could put that to our listeners to think of one and we'll come back to you next time we do the segment with our would ideas. anyone but celine dion sing it <laughs> it, it does need to be sort of like eminently singable Right, and I'm not saying that anyone can sing Nessun Dorma, but but kind of anybody can sing Nessun Dorma. I, I mean, well, if I you're think a that football there's... fan and you've had enough pints in you, you can really soar on those tacks. I mean, that's correct. More importantly, what I'm going to amend, I'm going to yes and uh, your suggestion and say that it needs to be able to be half sung by boundless groups of hooligans. We need a bunch mm, of drunk mm. Scotsmen and Irishmen and Englishmen leaning back and forth and half singing this with no syllables whatsoever. That's be kind and courteous is definitely the winner. <laughs> I mean, we've, 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 we've fallen a long way when the, the anthem for uh, Euro 2020 when England won was uh, Sweet Caroline. Uh, uh, uh. It's phenomenal that Pavarotti (laughs) was 20 years old. I mean, he was in America. No, he wasn't 20 years old. You're you're confused. The recording was 20 years old. The recording was 20 years old. So the recording that they used in 1990. Thank you for. I was confused. Yeah, that would involve a little bit of time travel, which might have been a little difficult for the budget of the BBC at the time. Now, now with, yeah. oh, with <laughs> now you can do anything knows. with the metaverse. Bring him yeah, back you're... as a hologram. You're good to go. The only downside of uh, uh, the 1990 World Cup, of course, is that England would lose in the semifinal mm. on penalties to then West Germany and then lose in the third place game to the Italians. Something's never changed, George. We so had it, didn't we have England versus Italy in our we did uh, Euro Cup last we did. year and Berese. That quack, he he had the Italians winning the whole thing. I mean, you can't trust him. Barese, can't tr- I mean, you can can't trust, trust that Antonio Barese. Sometime, somehow came down on the side of the Italians. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. You've got a whole bunch more stories in your pocket for the, for the future. Can you tease us on just one of those stories that might appear in a future episode? Well, oh, musical yeah, moments sh- and intersections. For sure. There are a lot of, you know, that neighbor that lives in your building that you walk past and you see all the time, but you don't actually say hi to that often. That's the relationship yes. between baseball 
and opera. And there's going to be a lot of times where baseball and opera intersect and a lot of times where they cross paths and a lot of times where facilities for opera might be used to communicate the outcome of sporting events. Hmm. That was utterly Stay delightful. Tuned. Just like that segment. Again, if you have a title for the brand new seg, you can tweet us at Opera Box Score. Uh, if you're watching on TDO, you want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, get the full show, Stitcher, Spotify, click follow, Apple Podcasts, smash the plus. And if song. you choose the winning segment, you get to have Norm Waddell say those words on our show, and you know that you were the inspiration. That was you. And you get to stay at Oliver's house. And if you don't <laughs> get chosen, you should feel really guilty. A little bit of <laughs> sports talk before we move on to the two-minute show. We've talked to the NFL the Olympics, of course, uh, right mm-hmm. around the corner. So who is not going to the Olympics? NBC. The <laughs> any sportscaster? Or any diplomats. And ESPN is not going, I think. I mean, all I wanted was Johnny Weir and, and Tara Lipinski to like show up next to the ice wearing their fabulous outfits. And now it's going to be in front of a green screen. Well, I was oh. going to say, Oliver, the only part of that that's not happening is them next to the ice. They're still going to show up in fabulous outfits. <laughs> and think, it's just going to be in Connecticut at 2 o'clock in the morning. Think about how many more outfits he can bring to Connecticut that he wouldn't have been able to get to China. <laughs> you know he bought four different plane tickets just so he could have the carry-on availability. He loves Russia, too. Oh, it's China. Um, but the thing is that like, there's something about being next to the ice that informs the way you dress. And... I feel like being in a studio will make them dress a little bit more conservative. Well, I think it's very difficult to regulate your temperature when you're in an indoor ice rink. So I think I think sweating is a real part of it. Two minute drill. It's right now. (laughs) (laughs) This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. All right, here's a story that could not possibly be more on brand for us. A new opera called Gods of the Game, a football opera, is set to open at Grange Park Opera in England this fall. Grange Park Artistic Director Kwame Kwe Arma, who will direct the production, says, quote, Opera, football, a marriage made in heaven, both full of passion drama and charismatic stars i assume the invitation for us to cover the october 2022 premiere is in the post michael fabiano and the cast of the cancelled production of carmen at la monet have written a letter to the prime minister of belgium blaming the theater's closure on quote policies inconsistent with science this is an unnecessary disastrous decision and the result of the belgian government's unequal and unbalanced position on the health and safety writes fabiano if madrid paris and london can maintain open and full houses to the public during this crisis certainly brussels can too Mark your calendars, the new date of the 2022 Grammy Awards ceremonies has been announced as April 3rd in Vegas, baby. Classical Grammys never make it onto the televised portion of the ceremony, so if you want to see friends of the show and nominees for Best Solo Vocal Album, Laura Strickling and Will Liberman in their prettiest gowns, you'll have to go to their website. A woman described in the news as an opera singer from Connecticut has been found not guilty on two counts of assaulting a law enforcement officer, fleeing police, and resisting arrest by reason of temporary insanity. 
Hannah Romehild was charged with driving an SUV through barriers at Mar-a-Lago in January of 2020, prompting the Secret Service and Palm Beach County Police to open fire at her vehicle. Lawyers for Romehild have said the opera singer has long dealt with mental health issues and had not taken her medication at the time of the incident. This spring, the Kennedy Center presents Washington National Opera's world premiere of Ridden in Stone, a prologue and three one-act operas which explore the meaning of monuments. Composers Huang Ro, Kamala Sankram, Alicia Hall Moran, and Carlos Simon will craft the pieces focused on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, the Portrait Monuments of 1921, and a same-sex marriage rally, which is not a monument. Congratulations to Navasard Hakobian, who took the first prize in Houston Grand Opera's annual Concert of Arias competition, performing arias from Tchaikovsky's Mazeppa and Donizetti's La Favorita. The Armenian baritone is relatively, un- relatively unknown in the States, but has already won other competitions in Bulgaria, Portugal, Russia, and Italy. The competition, dedicated this year to the memory of Maya Im, was adjudicated by HGO General Director Corey Dastour, Artistic Director Patrick Summers, Artistic Advisor Ana Maria Martinez, and friend of the show Christine Gerke. You can watch the full concert of Arias at the link in our show notes. We've got more COVID updates, and they are mostly postponements. Staatstheater Wiesbaden has postponed its new production of Queen of Spades until later this month. Theater Dortmund has delayed its production of The Merry Widow also until the end of the month. Opera de Oviedo has delayed the premiere of its Adriana Le Couvre until February. Maggio Musicali Fiorentino has delayed its production of Lo Sposa di Tre e Marito di Nessuna until February proud of myself for that one. On this side of the Atlantic, Philadelphia's Academy of Vocal Arts has postponed its production of Eugene Onegin until February, supplanting its production of Mignon and Pacific Opera in Victoria has postponed its production of Carmen indefinitely. In trade news, James Conway is stepping down from his position as artistic director of English touring opera in order to pursue freelance opportunities, according to a press release. Conway led the company for nearly 20 years and will remain in a part-time capacity until the end of this year. On the disabled list, Karsten Wittmoser will be making his company debut as Simone in Bilbao Opera's upcoming performances of Zemlinski's Eine Florentinische Tragödie, replacing Eglis Zielens, who has withdrawn due to illness. Adam Palka has withdrawn from the title role of Paris Opera's production of The Marriage of Figaro. Luca Pisaroni will be taking over for the entire run. Exit stage right, Taiwanese soprano Zoe Huang has died at age 58. Huang rose to prominence after winning the bronze medal from the Queen Elizabeth competition in 1988 and also worked as a collaborative pianist, radio presenter, writer, and creative director for music used in fashion. Mexican tenor Rafael Rojas has died at age 59. Rojas was awarded the Domingo Prize at the 1995 Operalia competition and went on to sing major Italian opera roles at prominent international companies, including Washington Opera, New York City Opera, Houston Grand, Welsh National Opera, and Semper Opera Dresden. Italian baritone Gianni Maffeo has died at age 82. He performed at the top opera houses all over the world and sang the role of Chonard on the semi-definitive Carrion recording of La Boheme. Spanish scholar and librettist James Moranis has died at the age of 76. His only opera, Life is a Dream, was completed in 1978 won a Pulitzer Prize in 2000, and then received its full premiere in 2010. 
And on this day, January 24th in 1639, it was the debut of Cavalli's opera Le Nozze di Tetti e Peleo in Venice. In 1705, Italian castrato and friend of the show, Farinelli was born. In 1776, 76, it was the birth of German composer and the character of a famous opera that I love, Ernst Theodor Amadeus Hoffmann. In 1835, it was the first performance of the opera by Bellini e Puritani in Paris. In 1905, Elena Nicolai was born in Bulgaria. In 1906, two one-act operas by Sergei Rachmaninoff premiered The Miserly Night and Francesca da Rimini in Moscow. In 1915, it was the birth of the Czech composer Vitislava Kapralova. In 1925, British countertenor and PDQ Bach collaborator John Ferrant, or John Ferrante, was born in Hartford, Connecticut. And in 1959, it was the first performance of Shostakovich's operetta Moscow Cherimushki. And that is your two-minute drill. Just the cabaletta of the aria Vienna Leonora from Donizetti's La Favorita. That was baritone Navasard Hakobian with pianist Kirill Kuzmin from the 2022 Houston Grand Opera Concert of Arias. And once again, you can watch the entire concert at the link in the show notes right down there. Also, if you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Get that full show, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You know, we talk about uh, Hagobian winning the HGO competition. I always wonder if there's like really, not bad blood, but a huge rivalry between HGO and the Dallas Opera. I mean, I don't have any skin mm. in the game despite being on TDO, but like, it's the two big companies of the state. And I know Texas is a big place, right? I'm trying to think of other two other companies that are so prominent and so close geographically. I just, well, I just Texas want to see gigantic. them. I'm yeah, sure it's is Dallas really as close to Houston as compared to like Boston and New York? I mean, Boston has resident <laughs> Southerner here. They're not close. <laughs> there the we go. The same border of the state. I don't know. I, I just... will say this conversation could verge dangerously close to. Um, we are on the Dallas Opera Network, so if there is a rivalry, we have to pick a side. We love Dallas. 10 out of 10. <laughs> best opera company in Texas. Too bad the Cowboys <laughs> crapped out in the playoffs, though. Oh! <laughs> and there goes, George. This has been our last week on the Dallas Opera Network. Sorry, it's been fun, it. guys. We're down love y'all. Appreciate base. it. All right. So, so listen. Sky Arts commissions Gods of the Game, a football opera. It's going to be Grange Park Opera. Um, I-, I will say before we go further with this, this is... This is fake football. This is this is European football. This is football. And for it is not of, Roll Tide football. For those of you wondering, it's also unrelated to the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, The Beautiful Game, about how a football team in Northern <laughs> Ireland helps a community come together during the Troubles. We were oh, all wow. wondering that, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for I'm clearing you, that up. Yeah. A musical that <laughs> I, does exist. <laughs> I mean, few. That's all I say is few. I wanted to make sure that when we said Grange Park, 
that we were talking about Grange Park Opera in Surrey, England. So, you know, right away there. With a fringe on top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not LaGrange, Illinois, for example. Yeah, right. you know? the, the opera tells the story of two football star friends who run into a wall of FIFA corruption. FIFA, of course, being the notoriously corrupt organization that produces the Great. World Cup. I will never get a FIFA guest on our show. Thanks. Uh, I don't want to touch anyone from FIFA with a 10-foot pole. The That's Grange true. They're corrupt. Park it's fine. Opera CEO Wasfi Kani said, I've never watched a football match. Now is the time to expand my horizons. I do understand the offside rule, but at the end of the day, I need to brush up on my football cliches. I... Well, he needs to listen to OBS. Yeah, it's like he just exactly. needs to hang out with we'll us. We'll help you. Yeah. We'll see how many of those cliches make it into the production, but... Boy, I just like <laughs> can't stop thinking about this show. It, it's the I, I when I f- saw this story, I was like, "This is the most on-brand thing I've ever seen for us." Like, <laughs> we need to like, we should like reach out to them and see if we can get one of us there for it, the premiere. You know, maybe it, commenting on the timelines and introducing <laughs> the opera. Maybe it's amazing. It feels like that meme of like I made a bot watch listen to. F- 2,000 hours of opera box score and this is the, the production and this is what we should be spamming the bejesus out of their press people no it's true it's like we're we are so on brand with them that they should really engage us to keep talking about this show and, and bring our audience of hundreds <laughs> our audience of literally dozen of us take us off state sides and to UK sides. I really wanted there to be a soccer fun in there, and it didn't work well. I'm sorry, I want to know how the um, how the composition is going to work on this too. So five composers are listed mm. behind the musical side of this. Uh, interested to see how that is going to play out. Maybe it fits right into the episodic or compartmentalized nature of the production. Maybe it's it's know. like a it's like a bracket where like each composer like composes a section of the opera, and then the uh, composer who's fifth. I don't know. I lost. Or maybe it's something like. Or they're doing like, it. Or maybe it's something they're like. They're doing the, it like. Oh, go ahead, Ashley. <laughs> we both right. I think we're about to make the might... same joke. Is it about the Met and they're putting people in in rotation in case somebody goes down for COVID, so they've always got a composer that's ready to go? I was going to compare it to the Monument Opera that uh, Matt was talking about, oh. where one of the pieces is distinctly. Not a monument. I mean, let's. We're we're gonna have to wait and see. Maybe it has to do with like what kinds of things get monuments and what kinds of things don't get monuments. Maybe. That's a worthwhile conversation to have. But because when 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 you when you said like you know one of them is gonna be a protest, I was like, oh, uh, like that could be one of the protests surrounding the taking down one of the Confederacy monuments, uh, which has been so relevant in the past uh, couple of years, uh, which would be a fascinating topic. I think it'd be really interesting in opera. Uh, but then it was a, it was a, a gay rights. Uh, well, yeah, what we know about it so far is that it follows a black father and son as they find themselves on opposing sides of a same sex marriage rally. So like lots of depths to plumb for drama. Oh, and absolutely. Personal growth and like historical import there. But it's not a monument. <laughs> yeah. So Decidedly we'll just have to see not... how it fits in. <laughs> Decidedly not a stone fixture that commemorates a moment in time, okay. but it's actually just. A moment in time. Ashley, you mentioned COVID earlier. The conventional wisdom, at least in this country, is that we are kind of blowing through now the peak of, of Omicron. But Whether you at, like it or not. Looking at these cancellations <laughs> in Europe, and, and dare I say even in Philadelphia, do you feel like we are turning a corner on, on the pandemic and in the arts? 
It's really, that's a great question. And it's a really tough one to answer with any sort of confidence. I will lean towards the word yes, question mark, while hiding under a desk and crossing my fingers. Um, It's, I, I even think, you know, I'm going to boil it down a little bit further. I look at, you know, a country as large as the United States, and I see how the Omicron numbers and frankly, not just Omicron, but like all of COVID in general, the right. infection rates and the numbers are are varying. And the places where it was very, very high right before the Christmas holiday are starting to wane, which is giving some people a little bit of hope where the people that weren't necessarily affected as much at the beginning of the Omicron variant are now starting to see that intensity and the rise in those numbers in sort of, you know, it's not totally urban versus rural, although it is a little because where there's more people, the numbers are going to go up and then eventually it trickles down. So I am hopeful. I am guardedly optimistic. Maybe it's just because we're in, I don't know, year three of this bastard by now. I'm really (laughs) just ready for it to be over. However, I do see with some of these waning numbers a little bit of hope. I know we're not seeing it in right. the cancellations well, that we're you, seeing even, across the Well, box. even compared to last week, like most of the most of the ones we talked about today weren't straight up cancellations like they have been for the past couple of weeks. These shocking. are all yeah. postponements and not not like huge yeah. postponements either. They're like a, a week, you know, two weeks, you know, uh, which is not bad. And it seems like the worst of and I stress to say the worst of this specific spike seems to be going down. Um, but it certainly is, you know, uh, going to be touch and go for a while with opera companies uh, in Europe and in the U.S. and elsewhere. Well, Michael Fabiano wrote an open letter about it. So really, you can consider <laughs> this problem solved by the open letter once again. I, what problem honestly... hasn't been fixed by that? I, uh, you know, my initial, literally, I audibly said the words, sure, Jan, uh, after I read the <laughs> opening. Uh, but I I want to give Fabiano a little bit of credit. He's, I get why he's upset. I think what he's more frustrated with, the more that I read about it, is the double standard in Belgium between the different right. types of places that can house lots of people at one time. So he feels as if the standard for opera houses is considerably more stringent than say a shopping center or a gym, which I totally get. Um, But the, the, the leaning into music helps our mental health. Yes, no question. But you know what also helps mental health, physical health and immunity and (laughs) not getting COVID. So uh, I, I don't give him full credit, but I give him a little. I mean, look, the Belgians are just weird. Let, let's just, I mean, they're not well, as weird as the American. So. They're, they're not as weird as the Swiss. Well, this is the Belgian opera the Bel- company. Right. He wrote it to the Belgians. And, and I, I will say one, one thing that he pointed out here, which was, I think, interesting in the letter, um, uh, was that the unlike a lot of EU countries and the U.S., uh, Belgium is one of the countries that still has the the ten day quarantine rule instead of the uh, seven or five day. Five day feels a little dicey to me. I, I'll be honest, uh, but most countries do seem to be transitioning away from that ten day sort of uh, thing, and Belgium has not yet, which has also made it more difficult to consider reopenings and making sure there's time for rehearsals and and you know making sure that the numbers are you know going where they need to go. Uh, so I do feel for him in that regard, because um, every country is different. And even though, and as we all know from sitting here in the United States, watching this this pandemic wash over us, every country is handling this differently and completely different degrees of competence. And uh, most of them uh, better than us. But well, I true. Do, and, I, and I do understand. <laughs> like, see the... also every U.S. state. <laughs> yes. 
I do understand like the ongoing frustration as of trying to be a working artist in this pandemic because it has been consistently just the last priority of any public policymaker is arts and culture. And so um, while I don't actually have a lot of faith that this open letter is going to make a difference, it is... You don't believe in the open letter, Matt? <laughs> I do. I like, I, I do really understand the sentiments that are in it. Right. Oliver, the uh, opera singer from Connecticut found not guilty. So I have, I have, well, one thing, like I always, I always annoys me when these types of stories can find out that somebody sang opera or sings opera. Like <laughs> that story we had about the uh, January 6th insurgent who was also at one point a voice teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I have not, no idea about the career of this woman. Um, Hannah, uh, whatever her name is, Rome, uh, I believe. Yeah, um, so I, I tried. I tried to find her like opera base, you know, history, anything like that. And, like she doesn't show up, so um, maybe she's had an amazing career in wherever she lives, Connecticut. But no. I don't know about it. Uh, and I also don't want to like make light of like um, mental health issues. Which if if this is what really happened with her. Uh, then yeah, that's something that should be taken seriously, et cetera, et cetera. And not but, played for clicks like this yeah. article was. Yeah. When I saw the uh, the object of the impact of this person's attack, just thinking about someone running into the wall of Mar-a-Lago, my first immediate first thought was good for her. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also an odd detail to say that this person was an opera singer. Like, if she was an investment banker, that would not be part of the company. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, yeah. So yeah. You, Yoga teacher, yeah. We're picking, picking on the wrong things here. The James Conway story, this is this is complex. And, Matt, we were talking about this, you know, before the show, about the, the wider context on him stepping down. Yeah, so there is some speculation that this is a continued fallout from, early, uh, I guess not earlier this year, but the end of last year. Uh, when the orchestra for the English touring opera had all of their orchestra musicians re-audition in the hopes of uh, bolstering diversity within the ranks. And that um, set off a bit of a firestorm of criticism uh, because it is a, a thorny issue without really a clear path forward in terms of what you do right. to increase access, increase diversity, uh, and also let people continue making their livelihoods like there are there are really good arguments for and against like for and against any approach to doing this um and and when eto english touring opera started to come under scrutiny they passed the buck to arts council england the primary yep. Yep. non-profit funding organization in england to say hang on a second Arts Council England told us that we needed to diversify racially in the orchestra, and then Arts Council England said, "No, no, 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 that's not what we said." So, well, that's that's not the way they wanted them to do it. Certainly, um, I, I will say, like before we get too uh, into this, is like all of this being related to James Conway stepping down is completely speculation. There have been some, uh, shall we say, bad actors on the internet who have made this link, and I have reasons to doubt it. Certain editors of a publication that rhymes a with cert- snipped misc a certain um, blog um. <laughs> who shall not be named um and, and very disruptive reputable bad sort of forces in the classical music world are are seeming to be finding this connection whether that connection actually exists or not i don't think we'll know we probably won't know 
Um, but certainly it is a complicated issue. And if it uh, continues, we'll talk about it here on the show. Let us wrap said show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call to uh, wrap it up, to take you home wherever you're going. Thanks again for hanging out with us on the show this week. We're going to kick it off with Oliver Camacho and a good call or a bad call. I've got the same call as last week. Um, the Met broadcast on Saturday the 29th, which is maybe the day after you're listening to this podcast, is Rigoletto, starring friend of the show, Quinn Kelsey. And he's been getting great reviews for his portrayal of the title role of Rigoletto. So go check that out on the radio, also featuring Rosa Feola as Gilda and Piotr Bechawa as the Duke. It's a pretty great cast. Matt Cummings. Uh... So Julian Fellows' new show about the Gilded Age starts this week, and is it probably going to be down Nabby copy-pasted to a turn-of-the-century America trying to convince us that the aristocracy so. is good <laughs> and they should have all the power? Yes. Um, but am I going to watch it because I'll do anything for Christine Baranski? Yes, I yeah. am. Thank you. Yes, I am. <laughs> the, uh, the woman, a, a big opera fan, she's appeared uh, next to just about every Broadway performer who has ever lived through the good wife and fight. Uh, I think Audra McDonald's on the show, too. There, I know the cast list like goes on and on and on, but those are the two that caught my eye. So I will be watching it. Weston Williams. Uh, I have a bad call. I would like to apologize for earlier when I was trying to think of a quintessential Gen Z bit of slang, and I said fleek. Because uh, I feel like I'm really bringing my millennial generation back by being chuggy. So I'd like to apologize for being chuggy to my fellow millennials. Did you work for the New York Times editorial board? <laughs> Come on. Yes. Sure Ashley Hardgrave. Uh, going double back on the HBO tip. Uh, there's another show that has just started on HBO called Somebody Somewhere. And it is incredible uh there's only two episodes out so far bridget everett is fantastic she's also a cabaret singer in her own right who's like super legit uh but she stars in a really incredible drama about loss and finding oneself and it is a delight and i encourage all of you to check it out my bad call is that classical artists are not on the grammy awards when they're live and in person i don't get it even just one classical category should be on that show. It is time for change. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about <laughs> opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score, where you can email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Help us deepen the bench of listeners, liking and sharing on the social media posts. Drop us a line, get that OBS beer coaster, the OBS lapel pin, just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you start your own campaign to get the classical Grammys on the televised broadcast. Hashtag free classical Grammys. <laughs> M-M-Y-S at the end. We're back with an all-new show next week when we induct an American birthday boy into the OBS Hall of Fame. Plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more agony of defeat. Join us. <laughs>